It's Monday, February the 22nd, 2021. More than 200 million vaccines have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens, from the creation of new vaccines to how they impact public health, and hopefully, one day, how they'll get us out of lockdowns. We'll look at how vaccines are made, the challenges of distributing them, and the impact of all that on public health and global geopolitics. Today, we're discussing how the different vaccines work and how effective they may be against emerging variants of the coronavirus. We speak to the inventor of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. We report from China, a country that faces a huge test of its homegrown vaccine technology as it tries to reopen. And with the Economist data team, we'll look at how far the variants of the virus have spread. Joining us this week is Slaveya Chankova, The Economist's healthcare correspondent. Slaveya, hello. How are you? Hi, Alok. I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, really happy to be with you guys. You've been reporting on this virus for more than a year now. How have you managed to survive in that time? Oh gosh, what a year it's been. I've changed my title from the healthcare correspondent to the coronavirus correspondent. I just can't wait to get back to normal, more or less, hopefully this summer. It's great to have you joining us for our discussions today. In this episode, we're going back to where the vaccine started. So far, three vaccines have been approved by a stringent regulator. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Many more have shown promising results. To get a better idea of how they work, I've been speaking to one of the key people in the vaccination story so far. Sarah Gilbert is the inventor of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. It has the most ambitious rollout plan of them all. Three billion doses are expected this year. Professor Gilbert spent more than a decade developing vaccine platforms. Those are ways to make new vaccines that allow scientists to reuse components from previous vaccines. She started her research a decade ago by working on influenza. She wanted to make a single vaccine that would work against all strains of that virus. That's a lot harder than it sounds, and so far, that research hasn't worked. But all that work on vaccine technology laid the groundwork for what happened in January 2020. We've had quite a lot of trials of the flu vaccine using two different viral vectors, MVA, which is what we started with, and then Chadox-1. Chadox-1 is made out of an adenovirus, and adenoviruses are viruses that infect us from time to time and give us a cold or possibly a gut infection. And the one that we use to start making Chadox-1 doesn't normally infect humans, it infects chimps. And what we've done is taken some of the genes out of the adenovirus, which makes it much safer, so it can't now spread through the body when we use it as a vaccine. Chadox-1 is the vaccine platform that Professor Gilbert used to build her new vaccine against COVID-19. 
It wasn't really until I got involved in helping in the response to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 that I got much more interested in developing more vaccines against emerging pathogens and using these platform technologies. And there are a number of other vaccines that I work on for diseases like Lassa fever, Nipah, MERS, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. And then with the WHO's encouragement, I started to look at planning for disease X. How could we quickly develop a vaccine if we needed to when a new pathogen arose? All those years of work preparing Chadox-1 meant that when they heard about the mystery pneumonia in Wuhan, Sarah Gilbert's team was ready. Within weeks of the publication of the first genetic sequence of the new coronavirus, the team in Oxford had designed its first working vaccine in the lab. I wanted to use that as the template for making the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, which means we need to know the amino acid sequence of the spike protein, the part of the coronavirus in this case that we want an immune response against. And we then order a synthetic DNA sequence which will encode it, and we put that into our Chadox-1 viral vector. We use the adenovirus, Chadox-1, to carry that spike protein gene inside the cells where the vaccine's being given as an injection, And those cells then start to make large quantities of the spike protein for a few days. And it only exists in the body for a few days. It can't spread around the body and infect other cells. The coronavirus is studded on its surface with spike proteins, which it uses to stick to, penetrate and infect cells in the human body. By showing the body's immune system a harmless version of this spike protein, the vaccine gives people the chance to prepare themselves in case they meet the real thing. And because of the way the vaccine has been designed, adjusting it to work against variants of the virus should be easy. Because we're using a platform technology, it's pretty quick to put a new sequence in, a new coronavirus spike sequence taken from one of the new variants, and start all over again. And it doesn't mean that we have to go through the whole of the year's work again. We just have to produce a new vaccine seed stock, so the first small amount of vaccine that we then use to manufacture all the rest of the vaccine from. We have three new sequences uh, that we're working with, generating preclinical data, but also preparing for the day where we might decide that we need this to go into a clinical trial and we might need to switch over to the new sequence. We're making sure that we won't be slow if that turns out to be the case. Natasha, let's start with you. How good is the Oxford vaccine? The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is very good. In the early days, we were looking at quite a few different reports of efficacy, the lowest of which was about, I think, 63% if given three weeks apart. It now looks as though if you give this vaccine over a longer interval, if you space the doses out, that actually it's a bit more effective than this. And so we have a preprint in The Lancet, the leading medical journal, and it says it's about 83% effective after the second dose. And in the three-month period between the doses, you've got about 76% efficacy. We're also seeing a reduction in transmission as well. The monitoring data suggests that there's a 67% reduction in transmission when you've taken this vaccine. So, Natasha, this Oxford's AstraZeneca vaccine has been approved by the UK. It's been approved by the European Union. The World Health Organization has said that it should be used. What's the holdup in America? It's not been approved yet by the Food and Drug Administration. 
So, yeah, you're right. The uh, AstraZeneca vaccine has had emergency authorization from a number of countries and approval from the EU. The FDA is a bit pickier. They want to see results of trials in the US, and these are just not finished. There was a trial hold as well when they did an investigation into an adverse event, which also held things up. But, you know, we should expect to see the FDA make a decision at some point in the near future, hopefully. Let's step back a second. Um, Slavea, can you give us a picture of the vaccine landscape? We know of three vaccines that everyone talks about, the Pfizer-BioNTech one, the AstraZeneca-Oxford one, and the Moderna vaccines. These have been approved and are being used in lots of places. How many more are there and how have we got them so quickly? So currently, there are at least 10 vaccines that have been approved in one or more countries. And that is quite amazing uh, because it's just over a year since this virus came about. And it usually takes years and years to develop and test vaccines. But in this case, things moved pretty quickly for several reasons. One is that the vaccines used technologies which have already been used for other pathogens. So scientists could quickly tweak them or repurpose them for SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus. In some cases, the technology is such that you don't actually need the actual virus. You could just have information about the genetic sequence of it and use that data to start developing the vaccine in the laboratory. And of course, there were some efficiencies in the approval process. Uh, Regulators started getting data early on before all the clinical trials uh, were completed and began reviewing the data as it became available rather than doing it all at once, which speeded up the regulatory process. Sarah Gilbert in her interview talked about platform technologies, which have been worked on for some time now, which allowed allowed everyone to hit the ground running. But on top of these platform technologies, how do the vaccines actually work? I mean, Natasha, can you just run us through the ways that this sort of induce immunity in the body? So the basic idea is to introduce the virus to the body in a way that stimulates the immune system but doesn't bring the harms of the disease. And so, you know, one of the oldest ways of doing this is to take the virus itself, inactivate it, and just give that. And that's how the Chinese are doing it with their Sinovac and Sinopharm uh, vaccines. Now, there are more modern ways of doing this by introducing a piece of the virus into the body. And that's what we heard Sarah Gilbert talking about with her adenovirus vaccines. Um, You know, she's using uh, an adenovirus virus to sort of package this portion of the viral DNA and deliver it into the body. It's non-replicating. The Russians are using the same sort of technology as well. And then, of course, you have the most modern form of doing this now is the mRNA vaccines. And here you're just packaging a little set of genetic instructions for making spike protein inside lipid nanoparticles, and you're delivering these to cells. And so at that point, the body just starts manufacturing its own spike protein. And from there, you get the immunity. So that's how most of them works. There's one other vaccine produced by Novavax, which is actually just a purified form of the spike protein itself. So they've grown up large vats of this spike protein, purified it, and they've made that into a vaccine. And Slavia, how effective are these vaccines? We heard from Natasha earlier about the effectiveness of the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca vaccine, but how does it compare to the other ones that, uh, that, that are now being distributed around the world? What we are seeing for the vaccines that have published 
detailed results from clinical trials is that they're extremely effective in preventing the most severe forms of COVID-19. We are seeing effectiveness near 95 to 100% against hospitalization and death. Effectiveness against milder forms of the disease, mild to moderate symptoms, is slightly less, but uh, it's still quite high uh, for some vaccines. It's in the range of 80, 90, 95%. So, yeah, going down the scale of severity, prevention against symptoms of any form, which is the efficacy that is usually reported as a headline figure, is probably a bit less. We'll talk a bit more about those Chinese and Russian vaccines in a moment. First, a reminder, though, if you want to read all The Economist coverage on the pandemic and much more besides, you should subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash the jab pod. A story that I found particularly interesting this week was on how the COVID-19 pandemic has made us all realise the importance of human contact. The pandemic has stopped us from shaking hands, from giving each other hugs and all those warm things that humans do to show each other they care. The sense of touch, according to this article, is the only one we can't do without. If you want to read that and much more, go to economist.com slash the jab pod. It's in the notes for this episode. One of the biggest unknowns in the global vaccine rollout is how China will fare. China has given emergency approval for a number of its vaccines, but they've all come exceptionally early in the clinical trial process. By November last year, one of the Chinese vaccines had been given to nearly one million people, effectively a live phase three trial. It's a huge experiment and there's a lot at stake. China is proud of its success in taming the pandemic, but it needs its vaccines to be effective if it's to reopen its borders to the rest of the world. Life in China is, on the one hand, more normal than it is in America or in Europe, but it's a new normal. It's a very strange normal. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. He writes a column every week about China called Chaguan. So restaurants are open. You can take public transport, you can go to cinemas, but, you know, they have limited seats and and they have limited seats in in restaurants. But there is an extraordinary layer of technological surveillance that's been applied to kind of crush this virus. And so every time you enter a shop, every time you get in a taxi, every time you take a, a plane or a train, many times a day, you have to scan a QR code with your smartphone to allow this kind of constant digital contact tracing so that they can achieve their big strategy which is so distinctive for a country of this size, to crush the virus completely and to have as an aim no cases at all. Now, one route out of such draconian measures is to have vaccines, and and the Chinese do have several. Can you run us through what vaccines have been approved for use in the country? So China's strategy could not be more different from America or or Britain's or any in Europe. They are not seeking a mass vaccination program where, you know, the newspapers are full of headlines about how many millions of people are being vaccinated every day. They are still basically locking down cities when there's an outbreak, keeping the international borders locked down. And so there are 16 or so Chinese vaccines in development. There are three leading candidates which have various levels of emergency authorization. There's Sinovac, uh, Sinopharm, and one made by the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, CanSino Bio. And they have 
been giving these out. So there's, depending on whose numbers you believe, between two and three doses per hundred people have been distributed now. So that's, you know, tens of millions of doses. But in a country of 1.4 billion, it's really strikingly low. How are the Western vaccines uh, being viewed in China? There was a really sinister moment over the new year, the sort of January 1st new year, when state media started pumping out any story in the Western media about someone dying after getting the Pfizer vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine. I did a sort of a, a straw poll, not a scientific survey, went out into central Beijing. Yeah. And spoke to two groups. Uh, one was some delivery guys, you know, taking a cigarette break by the side of the road, all of whom had been vaccinated by their companies. And they said absolutely that they trust the Chinese vaccine most of all. But when I sort of pushed them and said, is that because you distrust, say, an American vaccine? It was a much more generic kind of nationalist argument that, you know, well, of course, you're going to believe your own country, aren't you? And then I went and spoke uh, outside a big local public hospital, Chaiyang Hospital, to three women. It was a granddaughter, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And none of them had been vaccinated. Really interesting difference. The grandmother, there was no question of getting her vaccinated because in China, if you're over 59, you are not being selected for vaccination at all. There's some rumors that that's because at least one of the big vaccines is not actually good at providing protection for the over 59s. But we don't have a lot of data, nothing like the transparency that you see in the West. In the coming weeks, um, as the vaccine is rolled out to various populations in China, what will you be focusing on to try and understand whether it's working or not? So the really, really big question that everyone here in China is asking is what is China's exit strategy? You know, after a catastrophic start where they covered up the start of the virus at the beginning of 2020, they then did have a remarkable success in basically locking hundreds of millions of people indoors, breaking the chain of transmission and bringing the virus under control. But that's not sustainable indefinitely. So other countries are clearly going down an exit strategy that involves mass vaccinations. For the moment, China just isn't producing enough vaccines to make that look like their strategy. So until we see just much larger production numbers, until we see more data about how effective the Chinese vaccines are, you've got to guess that China's exit strategy is to keep the borders locked for a long time and hope the rest of the world sorts out their infections. What does that all mean for you? When do you get to leave the country? So like many foreign journalists, I have not left China for more than a year. And I have currently no hope of getting out. If I leave China, I cannot get back in as a foreign journalist. We won't get new visas. And look, that's hard. I mean, uh, not to get too personal, I have not seen my wife for more than a year. And I haven't seen my teenage son since June last year. And I have no idea uh, when I'm going to see them again. Natasha, what do we know about how good the Chinese vaccines are? Well, in talking about the main three vaccines that David was just talking about, that's Sinopharm, CanSino and Sinovac, the trials that we have suggest that efficacy comes in at about 79%, 66% and 51%. So the the 79% is the Sinopharm vaccine, uh, an adenovirus vaccine, 51% is the Sinovac. 
What we can say from trials is we're pretty sure that they work. And what I want to hear is for the WHO to make a decision on an emergency listing for one or more of these vaccines. That will tell me that they've reviewed the safety evidence as well and that the vaccines are safe. The Sinopharm and the Sinovac vaccines are an older style of vaccine making, so you would expect them to be safe as well, sort of from at a basic level. And what about just uh, just to add to the uh, the, the other non-Western vaccines, the, the Russian vaccine as well has been developed and is being distributed. What do we know about the effectiveness of that one? Well, again, we know from uh, publications that it's about 91% effective, which is great. Now, a week ago, the vaccine felt like it was coming out from under a cloud. But, you know, now we have a lot of discussion about how much of it that they can actually make and a very strange row between Sputnik, the Russian vaccine, and the European medicines regulator about whether or not Sputnik has applied for review. And this is very strange. We've not seen anything quite like this. It's all very unfortunate. And until this gets sorted out, I do think that Sputnik is going to be hard to trust widely. Slavea, what is the role of the Russian vaccine, the Chinese vaccines? What is the role of of those around the world? Who's going to be using them? They're probably mostly going to be used in developing countries where supply of the Western vaccines is still quite low because rich countries have hoarded up the initial supplies for most of this year. So these vaccines definitely have a role. And we heard from Natasha that, you know, they're quite effective. Uh, So a big contribution to ending the pandemic sooner. In the coming months with these vaccines, Slavia, what are you looking out for in terms of working out whether they're going to be uh, rolled out successfully or not? They're already in widespread use in uh, several countries. Hungary and Serbia are using uh, the Russian vaccine. So we are going to see how the trajectory of the epidemic develops in these countries, which will be the clearest evidence of how effective they are in the real world in the absence of published detailed data for some of them. And Natasha, just to give you a quick response here, there has been a cloud of suspicion over these vaccines from China and Russia. Is it justified? I think maybe in the early days, it was fair to question uh, how they were developed. But I'm quite confident that the Chinese vaccines are going to jump through all the hoops that we would want. And they will be a very welcome part of the global vaccine pool. I want to say the same thing about the Russian vaccine Sputnik. But there are just ongoing questions about it, including whether they're going to be able to produce as much as they say they are. One thing that is quite notable, and I have picked up in the Affinity data, is that, you know, at the moment, the leading vaccine distributors are, well, this Pfizer out ahead is is, um, delivering the most doses. You've then got Moderna and AstraZeneca. But then at about the same level as AstraZeneca at the moment, in the last week, Coronavac, the Sinovac vaccine, has also delivered about 50 million doses. Natasha, Slavia, thank you both very much. We'll be back in a moment to discuss how well the vaccines work with new variants. China may be faltering in its vaccination efforts, but other countries are racing ahead. James Fransham from the Economist data team has been digging into the latest figures for us. And in an experiment of our own, we've turned those figures into sound. Sonified this week is Chile. 
it has given first doses of vaccine to 12% of its population. But no one has yet received a follow-up dose. Next is Bahrain. The Middle Eastern country has administered first doses to 15% of its population, but no one has received a second dose. The United States has administered over a quarter of all vaccines globally, but on a per head basis, 12% of its population have received one dose. While 5% have received both doses. Britain continues the successful rollout of its vaccine programme. Nearly a quarter of the population have received a first dose. But just 1% have gotten a second jab. Israel continues to lead the way. Nearly 50% of the population have been given one dose of vaccine and 33% have gotten both doses. James, some of those numbers are extremely impressive, but there are questions over how the vaccines will stand up to the virus as it mutates. Can you tell us anything about how far the variants of the virus have spread through the world? I think effectively we're really concerning ourselves at this stage with three variants. So that is the British variant, the Brazilian variant and the South African variant. And to take those in order, the British variant is known as B117. There are currently 83 countries that are reporting the presence of that variant, of which about 63 countries have sequenced that sample and that variant. So the next one of concern is the South African variant. That's known as B1351. And 41 countries at the moment are reporting the presence of that in their country. And finally, the last variant of concern is the Brazilian variant. That's known as P1 or P2. And about 20 countries are reporting that at the moment. James, how do we know that these variants are actually spreading in the places that they're spreading? Yeah, well, there's basically a global effort to sequence as many samples of SARS-CoV-2 as possible. And to date, there have been over 500 samples uploaded to a common database known as GISAID. Sequencing capacity is actually increasing all the time. So in March and April last year, there were about 50,000 samples uploaded to this database a month. In January just gone, it was 100,000 samples. But what's somewhat problematic to be honest, is that most samples are from just a few countries. So about 40% of those samples are from the UK alone, 20% from the US, and then just under 10% from Denmark. So if you put that in the sense of like, okay, to what extent are we getting, you know, a good sense of what's going on in the world, just 4% of the 110 million COVID cases around the world have been British. So most of the genetic information that we're getting about these mutations and so on are from the behaviour of the virus in Britain. It's been sequencing about 5% of all cases. If we contrast that with the US, for example, where, yes, 20% of the samples in the global database are, are American, but 27 million of the COVID cases are American. So it's sequenced less than half of 1% 
So the ability to surveil and see what's going on with the virus is extremely variable. Slavail, why should the world be concerned about these variants? The variants are essentially collections of mutations that happen at the same time. And they're worrying because some of them have specific mutations that change them in ways that appear to make them transmit more easily. And in some cases, they seem to be mutations that make the variants resistant partially at least, to some of the vaccines that we already have. What the worrying variants have in common is they usually have a relatively high number of mutations, particularly in the region that is linked to the spike protein. That's the protrusion on the surface of the virus that the virus uses to latch on to cells and get into them to infect them. So every time scientists see such a mutation starting to circulate, they start watching it very carefully to see whether it just takes over other variants uh, circulating in the same place. And that's happened with the variants that James mentioned, the three that are currently the biggest worry. Sarah Gilbert, um, who the inventor of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, told us earlier that they're already working on adapting their vaccine to the new variants. Natasha, just give us a picture of how easy it is to develop new versions of the vaccines to tackle these new variants. Well, that will depend on the vaccine itself. And with the Adenovara vaccines, you know, what they're telling us is that it's, it's very easy to create the sort of seed stock again to tinker with the virus that they're using to put a bit of new genetic information inside it. That's also true of the mRNA vaccines. Again, it's just a very simple genetic tweak. For the inactivated vaccines, what you're going to have to do is get hold of a different variant and then grow it up and then inactivate it. And that could take a bit longer. But I think it's important to remember that everyone started at about the same time last year in January. And, you know, they had their candidate vaccines and were starting trials within months. And there's no reason to think that you couldn't do the same thing again. In fact, that it would be faster. What about the trials, actually? Even though we've had we've got the first generation of vaccines very quickly, it still took six to eight months worth of trials to get them approved. Uh, and that's that's very sensible. If we have a new vaccine for a new variant, does it have to go through that whole process again? This is where the news is great. And of course, what we're hearing is we're not going to have to do these trials again. Both the FDA, the American regulator, the EMA, the European regulator and the UK regulator have also quite clearly, there's going to be a fast track uh, pathway for any variant vaccines. And, And what that looks like is... You know, you come up with your variant vaccine, whether it's a booster uh, vaccine, whether it's a multivalent vaccine that protects against several variants. And then you you know, get a trial maybe of um, a number of hundreds of participants. And over you know, a number of weeks, you would just look at the immune reaction. Uh, so they are very simple to conduct and very quick to conduct. So I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that towards the third quarter of this year, we should start to see variant vaccines appearing. That is if we decided to do it today. I mean, it's something we can do quite quickly. So it sounds like vaccines against these new variants will be 
relatively straightforward to make and to prove, and perhaps we'll have vaccines that actually protect against several of them at once. It sounds a bit like the coronavirus is going to be sticking around in, in human society for a long time, and and uh, we're going to have to just deal with them seasonally like we do with, with flu. Is that right, Slavia? That's what it's starting to look like. Uh, the National Health Service here in the UK is in fact already starting to plan for doing another round of booster shots for people who've already been vaccinated sometime in the fall, for whichever variant might be circulating at the time, which is very much what we do with the seasonal flu right now. Um, before we go, is there anything that both of you would like to share with us that perhaps the rest of us have missed? Natasha? Well, with all the new variants that I'm struggling to keep tabs on, I read with great interest that researchers themselves are finding it difficult to keep up with the names and they've been using nicknames. And in fact, the first time I came across this was actually in a piece that Severe wrote. And she mentioned that the E484K mutation was sometimes nicknamed Eek, which I found absolutely hilarious. As you will know, we're doing a lot of sequencing in this country and we keep discovering variants. We can't keep calling them the UK variant. It's just confusing. So I asked on Twitter how we should do this. And I had suggestions like Pokemon names, Star Wars characters. Maybe we should do it the same way we name Hurricanes. I would like something a little bit more prosaic, like Bob or Kevin, maybe, or Variant Roger, you know. Variant Roger. Something. Yes, something. <laughs> Terrifying Variant Roger. Can you imagine? Yeah, the Roger with the double eek mutation, you know, something like that. And Slavia, what about you? One story I read this week, which I found quite interesting, uh, was about Finland, which came at the top of an index ranking countries in terms of their citizens' resistance to misinformation. And what's interesting about Finland is that they have a program, including for children, on how to spot fake news. There is a television show, apparently, in which a teddy bear criticizes the news coverage. In schools, in art class, they, may, they teach students how to spot doctored videos and, and photographs or, or how to work out whether a statistic is viable I love this. I know. I find this quite funny, I have to say. It's not. It's, it's, I love <laughs> it's it. Teddy bear. I love it. Oh, yeah. This is the dream. This has been the dream for all science reporters for about 30 years, that, that, that people know how to use numbers and how to spot fake information and things. Um, let, as soon as lockdowns are over, let's all move to Finland. I think we should, we should adopt a, a kind of our own teddy bear perhaps on the show and sort of every time one of us speaks out of turn, maybe the teddy bear should say, that's misinformation, Natasha. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Alok. That's not true. I can't, I'm sorry, Alok. I cannot let you say that. It, 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 sounds, it sounds almost creepy, but, but I, I, I'm up for it. Um, Natasha Slavia, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you so much, Alok. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. Thanks to Jason Hoskin and Daniel Lloyd-Evans for additional production and sound design. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week, 
when we'll be speaking to the man who's responsible for manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine this year alone, almost half the global total.